If you have your Bibles, would you please turn there with me to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus 6, we're going to be looking at the first eight verses tonight. Appreciate all your prayers. It was good at least to be able to tune in via live stream and observe the service from afar. I know that it's not anywhere close to the same as being here, but still a blessing to be able to tune in and see all that was happening uh, this morning as we were, I was home with some sick kiddos. We thank you for your prayers, and as uh, Pastor Wilborn mentioned now, we've swapped places, and so they're at home probably tuning in uh, right now as well. It was one of those things where, in God's happy providence, I was delighted to hear Pastor Wilborn mention, make mention of Ephesians 1 in the sermon, because I don't know if he knew it or not, but we were going to be reading it tonight as a complimentary text for our evening sermon, and you just love how the Lord ties all those things together and to see the, or rather hear about how the fact that there were a number of folks here, that some folks were displaced from their regular uh, seats and things like that. What a, what a happy thing that is when it happens. Um, Benjamin leaned over to me and said, that's funny, Dad. What, what would happen if someone ever took your seat? And I said, well, son, I, I don't have terrible fear of that happening because if you sit in the preacher's seat, you have to give the sermon. And I just don't know that that's ever going to happen. I think he was thinking of this little bench up here. So I'm, I'm not too worried about them stealing daddy's seat anytime soon. So, but thanks again for your prayers. It's good to be together as we worship the Lord tonight. So let's look now, shall we, to Ephesians, excuse me, Exodus chapter 6. First we'll read scripture and then we'll pray as we ask for God's help and blessing in our time together. Let's look to it. This is God's holy word, Exodus 6, verses 1 through 8. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us tonight. May he be pleased to write its eternal truth on all of our hearts. Would you pray with me, friends? Our Father, we come once again to your word as its pages are spread before us. We ask that your Holy Spirit would spread abroad in our hearts and give us illumination as we read and search and study tonight. Drive us to greater worship and greater adoration of the God whom your word, this word, displays and of the Christ that it exalts. And all for Jesus' sake. Amen. The gospel is for Christians too. The gospel is for Christians too. 
Now, to some of you, I suspect that that statement is uncontroversial and probably fairly elementary. It's a fundamental understanding of your Christian faith, and it is for me too, but I confess to you that it was not always that way. Growing up, I was probably a fairly typical American Christian, an evangelical. I believed the Bible. I believed that it was the Word of God. I loved Jesus. I believed that he was the only means of salvation and the only way to the Father. But in terms of the gospel, I I defaulted into thinking that it was something that belonged at the beginning of the Christian life, and then one moved on. The gospel was something that was preached at revivals or camp meetings or youth retreats or large evangelistic conferences, things like that. The gospel was something that was preached and was something that someone believed in order to become a Christian. But upon initially believing the gospel and becoming a Christian, a person moved on to deeper things. It's not that the gospel was unimportant. It was, of course, the good news unto salvation. It's just that, as far as I understood at the time, it was step one. But once you've checked off step one, you move on to step two and step three and so forth. In in, in my conception at the time, the gospel was something that was primarily geared toward unbelievers. And it had its primary role in the realm of evangelism. Well, then in college, I heard a remarkable thing. I remember one of the area pastors saying that simple, plain, ordinary statement in one of his sermons. The gospel is for Christians too. In other words, it's not just good news that needs to be preached to the lost into a dark and dying world as the means by which God builds his kingdom and engrafts all his chosen people. It is that, praise the Lord. But in addition to that, the gospel is something that Christians... Believers, those professing faith in Christ Jesus, whether for seven days or for 70 years, the gospel is something they need to hear too, over and over and over again. I really like how one pastor put it. He said, the gospel is like soil, rich and fertile. And you are a seed sown into that soil. And when you begin to live and put down roots and shoots, you sink those roots and shoots ever more deeply into the gospel So that as you grow, you derive more and more nourishment from the good news. You don't grow past it. You don't grow out of it. And it's not that you don't grow and mature in the faith. You do. But in that gospel soil, you grow more deeply down into it. The good news about Jesus is vital truth for you, no matter how mature or how far in advancement you have come in the Christian life. Close quote. A few weeks ago, we mentioned that this is one of the reasons we come together Lord's Day after Lord's Day, for many reasons, of course, but not least of which because we are so spiritually forgetful. We need reminding over and over of God's grace and goodness to us. We have a confession of sin and proclamation of pardon every week. We're reminded of God's grace to us in the Lord's Supper, at least monthly. We need these remindings over and over. We need to avail ourselves of the means of grace. We need reminding of the good news of the gospel. We need strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow, to borrow the language of the hymn writer. And when the world and sin and the devil are constantly beating us down, it is very easy to forget, is it not? We need the reminder of God's promises. We feel our souls steeled on Sundays, on the Lord's days, when we feast together And how quickly we get slapped in the face of the reality of life on Monday morning. And how quickly our spiritual forgetfulness clicks on. Moses and Aaron are not altogether different than you and me. And they stand in 
such a need at this point in their ministry, and God meets them in that need in a wondrous way. Remember the context? God has sent Moses and Aaron to Egypt with a message, a promise that God was going to set his people free. They told the elders of Israel there at the end of chapter 4, and the elders received it with joy. Doxology. And so they then Moses and Aaron go to preach to Pharaoh, and instead of joy, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And things, as we thought about last week, instead of getting better for Israel, got worse and worse and worse. So that by the end of chapter 5, both Pharaoh and the people of Israel have rejected both the message and the messengers of God, Moses and Aaron. And in verses 22 and 23 there, at the end of chapter 5, we see Moses deeply discouraged. Verse 22 of chapter 5, Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. He's crying out to God for an answer. And now here in chapter 6, of course, is God's response. And in God's response, he lays out a very helpful outline by which to study this passage. He comes to them, God does, he reveals his name and reminds them of his promises kept in the past. And he tells them of promises yet to come. Past grace and future hope. We saw last week how verse 1 of chapter 6 was God's answer to Moses' cry there at the end of chapter 5. Remember, Moses presses God for his promise. Lord, you said you would deliver your people. Will you not now act to save them, to make good on your promise, to do what you said it is you're going to do? In chapter 6, verse 1, God answers. Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he, Pharaoh, will send them out. And with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. This is how it's going to go, Moses. But in order to further strengthen your resolve and in order to further bolster your confidence in, in my commitment and in my ability to keep my promises, let me provide for you yet even further reasons why you can trust me and why you can depend on me, Moses. You see God's kindness here towards Moses? God could have been perfectly well justified in saying, Moses, haven't I told you enough? Haven't I shown you enough? Haven't I not already told you I was going to do these things and yet you keep on doubting me? Yeah, what, what does God do? He condescends to Moses in his weakness. He condescends to Moses in his hour of need and he meets him with yet further grace and gives him yet more reasons to be encouraged. That's what God does here in verses 2 through 8. Notice how the passage is put together in verse 2, and then again in verse 6, and then again in verse 8, the, the beginning, the middle, and the end of this pericope. God makes this declaration. He says his name, I am the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. So we know he's using his divine covenant name Yahweh or Jehovah there. And that does two things for us. First, it helps us understand the big point, the big purpose, the ultimate goal behind all that God is doing in this book of Exodus and in this mighty act of deliverance, it's not to make much of Moses. It's also not to make much of Israel, for that matter. No, the big point in all of this is to make much of and bring great glory to God. One commentator put it like this. The gospel itself is about fixing your eyes, captivating your heart, inflaming your soul with delight in and passion for God. 
God wants to know you and he wants you to know him. This is eternal life, Jesus said, that you might know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. The purpose of the gospel is that you might know God. The good news has an end in view, and that end is to give you to God and to give God to you, close quote. Or to borrow the language, as we so often do from our shorter catechism, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so in the beginning and in the middle and at the end of our passage, as God outlines his saving purposes to Moses, he repeats that assertion, I am the Lord. So that's one thing that the declaration of the divine name does for us, is it reminds us of the great end in all of this that God's up to. But the other thing that that declaration of the divine name does is it gives us a helpful structure or outline, because at verse 2 he says, I am the Lord. And then he begins to recount his past acts of faithfulness toward his people. Or, for our sermon purposes, we're calling that faithfulness proven. And then at verse 6, we see God making a series of promises for the future. Again, with that, I am the Lord, and he gives promises for the future, or faithfulness yet to come. Faithfulness proven, and faithfulness yet to come. And tonight, we'll largely focus on those future promises, the faithfulness yet to come. But let's first briefly look at that first section in verses 2 through 5. First, faithfulness proven. In this portion, God sets the foundation for his plan to save his people. And he rests that plan, as we saw so often in his dealings back in Genesis with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He rests that plan entirely on his faithfulness to his covenant promises in the past. If you look at chapter 6, verses 2 through 5, you'll see that God reveals himself, and then God remembers. I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now, that doesn't mean that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew nothing of the divine name, L-O-R-D in all caps, Yahweh. We know, for example, from Genesis chapter 4, verse 26, that in the days of Enosh, people first began to call on the name of the Lord, Yahweh. We know from Genesis 15, verse 2, that Abraham himself prayed to Yahweh, the Lord, That was the name Abraham used. So what does it mean then? Well, what God means here is that when he revealed the name Yahweh to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, he was doing so in a new context. And this name is not one among many others, but rather this is a name that captures the essence of who God is and how he shall be towards his people. And the subsequent history of God's saving work in the remainder of the story will underline that fact. My boys, when they were younger, would call me daddy. If you have sons, that's probably true of you as well. Now they're a little older, and they mostly use the phrase dad. Ellie, our toddler, she still resorts to dada. Uh, Once in a while, the boys will use the Latin pater, because we're the Morrises, and we're just weird like that. We use Latin family names around our household, don't you? Boys and girls, I bet it's probably the same with you as well. You could call your mother mom or mommy. You might call your father dad or daddy and so on and so forth. But all of those names are just one option among many. When he was younger, I think around age two or so, I think we rocked Benjamin's world and we blew his mind when we asked, what's daddy's name? Daddy, he responded. 
Well, no, not quite. His name is Sean, and Mommy's name is Sarah. And he just sort of sat there in stunned silence, not knowing quite what to do, processing all of this. But I remember trying to explain to him, this is who I am. This is my name. This is my identity. I relate to you as daddy, as father. That's my title. And you, you refer to me by that title sometimes with a, with, as if it were a name. But really, my name isn't dad. My name is Sean. So too it is in our text with the Lord. In this moment of, of stealing encouragement, he reveals himself and he reminds them of his name. And then secondly, God remembers and rehearses his covenant. Verse 4. I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. God had made promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to give them the land, and he has not forgotten his covenant promises And so the salvation that will shortly take place in the Exodus and all the revelation that God will soon give through Moses and indeed all the subsequent redemptive acts of God will do in the scriptures, each new covenant that God gives with David and then on with the prophets, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant foretold, and of course climaxing in the Lord Jesus Christ, all of it is given its fulfillment in covenant promise. You see, there is one plan. There is one purpose according to which God is working to save his people across history. That is the foundation for everything else that God says. He reveals himself, I am the Lord, and then he remembers his covenant, his promises. He was faithful to his word, and he delivered on his promises to the patriarchs. He is trustworthy and true, and he will keep his word again. Not a single word shall fall. Not one. Not one of his covenant promises will go unfulfilled. Not one of them will fall away. Not one of them will be unresolved. That is the basis for every promise he's about to make to Moses. That's the basis for every pronouncement he shall make throughout the rest of Scripture. I and the Lord, and this is my covenant promise, and I will bring my purposes to bear. Faithfulness proven. That's the first thing that Moses is given here, and that we are given as well. But then secondly, and more at length, verses 6, 7, and 8. Faithfulness first proven, but now faithfulness yet to come. All right, fine. God will keep his promises. Well, what exactly is he promising to do? God begins again, verse 6, with, I am the Lord. But this time, rather than rehearsing his past acts that he did, here he's making promises for the future. There are seven, and they all begin, at least in my ESV translation, with I will. The first three are there in verse 6. You see them? I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And then I will deliver you from slavery to them. And then I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. There's two more promises in verse 7. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. And the last two in verse 8. I will bring you into the land, and I will give it to you for a possession. And so with these seven 
I will statements, God articulates how he is going to save Israel from bondage and from slavery in Egypt. Here is God's game plan, if you like. And we can summarize it under four headings, which you should see there in the outline. Liberation, redemption, adoption, and inheritance. Liberation, redemption, adoption, and inheritance. Within those four titles, within those four words, we we find encapsulated the promises, the, the breadth of the promises that God's making here in these verses of Exodus 6. So let's think through it along those lines. First, liberation. Verse 6, God will set his people free. That is the point of those first two I will statements that he makes there. Salvation means release from bondage. It means liberation from captivity. And understanding this is key because from here on out, both in your Old Testament scriptures and in the New Testament, the Exodus event is the paradigm, it is the, it is the template, it is the key illustration for how God's people understand salvation. It's the reference point for how the New Testament writers describe salvation. This is the basic template, the Exodus event, that informs the understanding of salvation from here on out in the Holy Scriptures. It's not the only one, of course. It's not the only paradigm or metaphor or illustration, but it's the major one, absolutely. In the story of the Transfiguration in Luke chapter 9, Jesus talks about his soon departure, his imminent departure. Now that word there, departure, is significant because the Greek word that Luke uses is exodon, exodus. What they're talking about is the cross, of course, The language they use to describe the cross is Jesus' exodus. Here is the salvation to which the exodus story points. Calvary is the greater exodus of God's people where Jesus redeemed from slavery and bondage, the bondage of sin, all who believe in him. There's liberation in exodus. There's greater liberation to come in Jesus Christ. Galatians 5, verse 1, it is for freedom Christ has set us free. If the Son sets you free, John 8, 31, you are free indeed. Here's the good news. Jesus Christ brings liberation from slavery and bondage. That's part of the gospel message. It's told here to Moses. It's the gospel preached beforehand. Christ comes to bring liberation for his people. But there's a second aspect of salvation that's also here in verse 6. Redemption. God will buy his people back. God will buy his people back. Verse 6. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. Now freedom is still, of course, the, the broad idea that's at play here. But this word redeem and redemption, it highlights How God will make us free? How is he going to bring us into that state of liberation? How is he going to bring us into that estate of freedom? Well, he makes us free by paying a price to purchase our liberation. And here, too, the redemption of Israel is but a shadow pointing to a greater reality in Christ. You heard it when we read through Ephesians in verse 7. In both Ephesians 1, verse 7, and in Colossians 1, Verse 14, we read the same statement. In him we have redemption by his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Or Hebrews 9, verse 12, speaking about the types and the patterns and the symbols of Old Testament sacrifice, all of them fulfilled in Jesus. Hebrews says, 
he offered himself, his own blood, securing eternal redemption. One commentator puts it like this. We are slaves, the Bible says. Slaves. We thought about that a lot in Ephesians chapter 6 earlier back in the late summer and early fall a number of months ago. We live by nature in bondage to sin. By nature, we are not free. But the good news is that the price of your freedom has been paid. Jesus can make you free. He was enslaved and mistreated and crucified that your debt of sin might be canceled. When he said to Telestai, it is finished, he meant paid in full. Your debts wiped clean. You are free by his grace if today you believe the gospel. Close quote. God will buy his people back. Redemption. Redeeming. That's what redeeming means, does it not? It means to get back at the cost of a price. You redeem things. You redeem, whether it's a coupon at the grocery store or a much larger legal transaction, redemption comes at a price, and then the object in question belongs to you. Freedom and liberation comes for God's people, but he does so by way of redemption. It's told to Moses. It's told to us in the New Covenant era. The gospel preached beforehand to Moses even here. Liberation. And then redemption. But then there's a third aspect of salvation there in verse 7. The next two I will promises. Here, the third aspect is adoption. Adoption. Verse 7, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Here's the glorious thing of your salvation, Christian believer. It's not just freedom. And it's not just redemption. Although those are glorious gifts, no question about it. Make no mistake that if God stopped with our liberation and then set us out on our own, that, that, that act alone would warrant our adoration of him for all eternity. But he does not stop there. He takes it even further. He takes us pardons our sins, wipes us clean, and makes us his children. I will be your God. You will be my people. It's the language he uses here in Exodus. The New Testament category for that is adoption. He brings us into his family. To all who received, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. John 1, verse 13, part of that beautiful prologue to John's gospel. The Puritans, you know, said that adoption was the highest privilege of the Christian gospel, that it was the crown jewel in the diadem of the saving benefits that we enjoy at Christ's hand. It's the crowning benefit given to every believer. It might be one of the most neglected graces in terms of what we Christians appreciate and understand of the blessings and benefits we receive from God's hand. The grace and gift of adoption. A child of God. Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should become children of God. 1 John 3, verse 1. Is there anything sweeter? Is there anything more wondrous? Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us. 
As we said, God could have stopped right there with forgiveness. He would have been well within his rights to do so. And that act alone, if he would have forgiven us our sins and wiped our our debts clean, our transgressions and sins against him in terms of the courtroom, the bar of justice in the courtroom of eternity, if he would have wiped that slate clean and pardoned and forgiven us, that act alone would have been infinitely gracious and beyond what we deserve. At the cross, Jesus would wipe the slate clean and pay our penalty and purchase our freedom. And that would satisfy all the demands of love and generosity and grace. That, that wicked rebels might not be condemned, but pardoned. Surely that's enough. Surely that's enough to, to cause us to worship him. Surely that's enough for us to fall down our faces in grateful adoration. But as one man puts it, it is not enough for the love of God. The love of God takes us wretched slaves of our own sinful passions, destitute of any worthiness of our own, filthy in the rags of our selfishness and pride. He takes us, and he does much more than wash us clean, much more than forgive our sin, much more than set us free. He calls you beloved child, precious son or daughter of mine. He fixes his delight on you, He calls you by name. He sets his name, the triune name, the family name upon you. And you go to the one enthroned in majesty and glory, the one of infinite might and perfect purity, and you call him Abba, Father. You, believer in Jesus, by the blood of his only begotten son, have been adopted and made a child of God by his grace. Close quote. This is God's pattern This is God's pattern of salvation in Exodus and now for us in Christ as well. Liberated, redeemed, adopted. The gospel preached beforehand as it's given here to Moses. And we understand with such crystal clarity, glorious clarity, as we sit where we are in the new covenant economy. But then finally, inheritance. Liberation, redemption, adoption, inheritance. That's a consequence a beautiful consequence. We tend to think of the word consequence generally in its more negative aspects. You do something wrong, well, there's consequences for your actions, yes. But there's a consequence, a glorious consequence of becoming a child of God, of being adopted. In this case, you're given an inheritance. Exodus 6, verse 8. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. They're going to inherit the land. Remember, Canaan was the land in which the fathers sojourned, the patriarchs sojourned. God promised to give it to their descendants. Hasn't happened yet. Now God's going to keep his word. This promised land, of course, is another picture pointing us forward to the new covenant and a picture of all the benefits that come to all who trust in Christ. If God's people are liberated and redeemed and adopted then we stand to inherit the blessings of the promises. As it was in the Old Testament economy, so it is in the New Testament economy. As Paul puts it in Galatians 4, verse 7, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Or Romans 8, verse 17, if we are children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs or joint heirs with Christ. Consider this, you, believer in Jesus, stand to inherit with him the glory that is his. 
He's done all the work. He's paid all the price. He's borne all the penalty. The inheritance rightly belongs to him. And you've been welcomed to share in that inheritance with him. Inheritance is a logical outflow of adoption, and that's how it works, yes? Mom and dad do all the work. Mom and dad work hard. They earn the money. They pay the bills. They procure the mortgage. They build the house, establish a life. And then to this child, we think of adoption, to this child outside the family, this child having done nothing whatsoever to warrant any affection or deserving, mom and dad will say, son, daughter, why don't you come in? Eat with us. Live with us. We'll help you when the time comes for whatever's next in your life. You belong here. All that we have is now yours. It's yours. We have an inheritance that can never spoil or fade, kept in heaven for us. First Peter chapter 1. We will one day, Matthew 5, verse 5, one day we will inherit the earth. You see, dimly pictured here in this promise of Canaan's fair and pleasant land, dimly pictured here in this land promise, one day God's people will have the new heavens and the new earth, a place free from sin and sorrowing, a home of righteousness, a place to rest and to rejoice. And more than that, pictured here is the new covenant promise that he will be our God and that we will be his people. God, you see, God is our inheritance. God is our portion. Isn't that what the psalmist says? God is our portion forever. God is the gospel, it has been said. In the gospel, we get not just pardon and adoption, not just forgiveness of sin and not just all the blessings and benefits. In the gospel, we get Christ. We get Christ and all his benefits. And nothing could be sweeter and more precious. And here in Exodus chapter 6 is a summary, really, in type and shadow, yes, but a summary of the gospel itself. Philip Ryken, in one of his comments, in, in, in his commentary on these verses, verses, he says this, All that is required is to trust in Jesus, believing that he has turned the I wills of salvation into the I have done it of the gospel. From Moses' vantage point, this was all yet to come. It was all, I will, I will, I will. Someday, one day, it will be true. From our vantage point, it is all, it is finished. The work is done. I have done it. Rest on me, he says. Close quote. Friends, if tonight you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, then you frankly remain in the bondage of your sin, and you simply must flee to him for refuge. It's really that simple. You simply must, you simply must flee to Christ for refuge. But if tonight you are a Christian, and like Moses you find yourself in discouragement, even in disappointment, perhaps even even bordering on despair, then you need the encouragement of the gospel imparted to your soul this evening. Hear and believe and cling to it afresh, brothers and sisters. Fight your discouragement with the good news of the gospel of grace so that your soul might be refreshed and renewed, that you might press on, that you might persevere, that we all might persevere in our service to him and in our life toward him. That is, a life lived to the glory and praise of God. Liberation, redemption, adoption, 
and inheritance. The gospel preached beforehand through Moses to the encouragement of our souls tonight. Faithfulness proven. Faithfulness yet to come. Bright hope for tomorrow and promises for today. Praise God for his word to us tonight. Would you pray with me, friends? Our Father, we thank you for your sure and steadfast covenant mercies, that your promises of salvation have been brought to bear in the lives of your people ages and eons ago and even this very night. Thank you that you grant us strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Thank you. Would you give us the joy of believing the gospel, of reveling in the inheritance and the promises that are ours through Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray tonight. Amen.